This episode of On The Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles Curbside Pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here and welcome to tonight's show. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I hope everyone is excited about the recruiting weekend that Georgia has going right now. Uh, here tonight to talk to you a lot about the SEC spring meetings. I was in Destin uh, all of last week covering those for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Dog Nation. And, uh, you know, in some ways it lived up to the hype, and in some ways it didn't. Certainly we all went into last week wondering how things were going to go between Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban. I'm sure most of you are aware of the exchange that those two high-profile coaches had just a couple weeks ago when Nick Saban asserted that Texas A&M bought its class and Jimbo Fisher fired back that Nick Saban was a despicable narcissist, uh, among other things. So that, that was a pretty fascinating public exchange that you don't expect to have. And, uh, you know, I understand Saban's source of frustration with NIL. Uh, frankly, him and Kirby are on the same page. Uh, as far as that goes, both of them are concerned about uh, equity in terms of players and what they would be offered. And certainly it appears that Texas A&M and Texas would have more resources in that capacity. So I understand that. Um, I, you know, did Saban cross the line? Probably. Uh, but at the same time, I thought that uh, Jimbo Fisher went too far in firing back. It just you know, he made it personal instead of, you know, saying, no, that didn't happen. And merely saying that, you know, there were rules violations at Alabama. Um, he made it personal in terms of how he attacked uh, Nick Saban. And I, it, it just seemed it just seemed a bit much to me. So thought that was interesting. Nick Saban was uh, asked specifically, did he have any proof that Texas A&M bought players? And he said, I didn't really say that anybody did anything wrong. Uh, he repeated that when he when the Texas A&M reporter followed up and Saban said, I have no problem with Jimbo at all. You know, Kirby Smart was asked about this and, you know, Kirby coached on the same staff with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher at LSU uh, for one season. I believe it was 2004. And Kirby said, I'm not really worried about a feud between two guys that used to sit in the same staff meeting and have similar conversations. You guys should be on the headphones sometimes. You think that was Mickey Mouse. And so Kirby basically asserting that, you know what, this isn't the first time that Jimbo and Nick have gotten sideways. And I asked a former LSU player who was on those teams, and he told me, yeah, Jimbo and Saban would be nose to nose at times. And so, you know, this is a dynamic relationship. Uh, when Jimbo was brought in the next day, I asked Jimbo Fisher about his relationship with Nick Saban when the two were at LSU. And, uh, you know, he said it was fine. And I pressed a little bit more and he said, yeah, you know, and he compared it to a brother. He said, you love your brother. You ever fight with your brother? And he talked about how competitive coaches were and that you couldn't have a bunch of yes men on your staff. Sometimes coaches need somebody that's going to challenge them. Right. And so I think, you know, Jimbo kind of left it in that place where this is a brotherly spat. And I think that's a place that everybody is comfortable with that being. And it was important, not just in the sense of both of these guys need to move on. because I think they kind of damaged one another in this exchange. But it was also important in the sense of 
trying to come up with solutions for the NIL. Now, truthfully, there's always going to be programs that are looking for an edge. But I think the concern where NIL is at is a couple of things. One, players being offered deals before they sign. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, a player can't be guaranteed that deal. So he might be promised something. And then once he signs, maybe the school doesn't come through. So you want to protect the player from the bait and switch, number one. Number two, the programs want to protect themselves. I spoke with with the new LSU coach, Brian Kelly, the former Notre Dame coach, about this. And Brian Kelly said, you know, what's to stop a kid or someone related to the kid from saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I've got a $1.5 million offer from so-and-so. And if you want me, you, you, you better jump on board and pay more. Well, how does the coaching staff know how much that player is being offered? They don't. There's no transparency in these offers. So these are a couple of the of the wrinkles with NIL that can be solved at the NCAA level. Now, when it comes to the enforcement, um, the NCAA is not the police. They can't go through your bank records or tap your phones. Uh, so that's the challenge is trying to enforce the rules. Um, but, you know, and we'll talk a lot more about NIL in the second half. I'll, I'll weigh into that a little bit more. But on the first half, I wanted to talk about the the relationship between Nick and Jimbo. I believe that was solved and what Kirby Smart said. um, You know, I thought that was very interesting. You know, Kirby kind of stayed above the fray, didn't really get too involved in that. Uh, There were some other issues that came up uh, specifically that involved Georgia. And I think the biggest one is the schedule model. So you hear the two schedule. What does the schedule model mean? Well, right now, the way it stands, you play the same six teams in your division every year, and then you rotate. Uh, then you play two from the West, one that is an annual opponent, and that's Auburn, and then the other opponent rotates, right? So you basically play the same seven teams every year and then rotate the eight. Well, the problem with that is that schools don't get around to playing each other very often. Right. For example, Georgia hasn't played at Texas A&M yet. And the Aggies have been in the league for eight years. And Kirby and other coaches are proponents of playing other teams more often. And so that's why they're looking for a different schedule model that will involve more, more rotation. So the two schedule models that they narrowed it down to before the SEC meetings, which is where the presidents and ADs and coaches all meet, was something called the 7-1, which is another eight-game model where you would only play one opponent every year and rotate seven, right? Or the 3-6, where you would play the same three opponents every year and rotate six. Well, both of those scheduling models have their strengths and weaknesses. We thought that the nine-game schedule, the 3-6, was going to get past this week. It had a lot of momentum coming in and then you say, well, who would Georgia's three teams be? Well, you know, Florida, probably Auburn and I don't know, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, third team to be named. I'm not sure how Auburn felt about that. Not that they don't want to play Georgia, but is it really fair to ask Auburn to play Alabama and Georgia every year? So not sure how that would have worked. Not sure if Auburn would have stuck as the annual opponent. But, but we're not there yet. We don't even know that it's going to happen. 
The reason why is because both Kirby and Nick Saban expressed some hesitation. I don't know how they voted in that straw poll vote, but you know, Kirby was once a proponent of playing the nine game schedule. He said that four years ago uh, after an LSU game or right before the LSU game. And so I asked him about it. I said, Kirby, you used to, you said you used to want to do this. Well, things have changed since then, right? Since then, Georgia has added a home and home series with Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Louisville. Um, and, and so Georgia has really beefed up that non-conference schedule. So now all of a sudden, a nine-game SEC schedule is daunting enough, much less when you're playing home and home against other Power Five conference teams. Plus, don't forget that Georgia Tech rivalry is a home and home. They're giving away a home game to Georgia Tech every other year. And oh, by the way, we still aren't sure what's going to happen with the Jacksonville series. Uh, I did a poll on that, and I'll address that in the second half of the show. But because of that aggressive scheduling, all of a sudden, I'm not sure Georgia wants to move forward with a nine-game schedule. Certainly not when there's only a four-team college football playoff. See, that's another complication with this. There's been 32 different teams selected for college football playoffs over the last eight years. None of them had two losses. And the best example of a two-loss team that didn't get in, despite being one of the four best, was 2018 Georgia. So Georgia's been down this road before. They've been left out of the playoff because they play in the SEC. They had that second loss. Why in the world would you want to add a ninth game? Nick Saban himself, once a proponent of the nine-game schedule, talked about the competitive balance portion of this equation. Competitive balance. So on the one hand, you'd have the SEC playing these nine-game schedules. And according to Saban, within those nine games, regardless of who you're playing, you're probably going to play five or so top 15 ranked teams or top 15 teams. Now, maybe they don't finish there because we know the SEC beats up on one another. But to Saban's point, if you're playing five of the top 15 teams in the nation, that's very different than the Big Ten and their nine-game schedule. That's very different than the ACC and their eight-game schedule. And there's talk that the Pac-12 wants to move back to a nine-game, or excuse me, an eight-game schedule, right? So why are you subjecting yourself to a more difficult regular season when you're competing for one of those four playoff spots with an ACC, a Big Ten, or Pac-12, or a Big 12 team, right? You're setting yourself up. And I think that was Greg Sankey's point. Uh, at different points, Greg Sankey has talked about the model, and he said, we're not going to deviate from what's worked for us. And I think we would all agree with the SEC winning the last four national championships, and I believe 12 out of the last 16, that their schedule model has worked really well. So nobody's in a hurry to change that, especially if we're still talking about a four-game playoff, right? Now, why are we still talking about a four-team playoff? Well, the answer to that is because of the alliance. And I don't know how closely you've been paying attention, but last year around this time, there was a lot of momentum building when we heard about this 12-team playoff proposal. How great would that be? There would be automatic bids from the Power Five conferences. There'd be a group of five team. And then you'd have at-large teams, right? And your top four teams, all conference champions, would get a bye. 
And then you'd have these other eight teams play four games on campuses with the higher seeded team, the home team. How cool would that have been? 2017, for example, if you would have applied this formula, Alabama wouldn't have gotten that free buy that they got. They would have had to play host to an undefeated Central Florida in the first round, right? So you apply that model, and, man, there would have been some fun matchups. I think Florida would have played at Michigan one year in December. Can you imagine that? Um, some interesting interconference games if we had the 12-team schedule. It was a 12-team playoff. So we're all thinking last year that this is going to happen. There's all this momentum. I remember I wrote a column about it, and even though I'm a purist and a traditionalist, I said, no, this is good for college football because that buy is such an advantage that it makes the regular season valuable to have that buy. And yet we're expanding the playoff where we'll get more teams from different conferences. I like to see that. I like to see teams from different conferences have a shot. Well, then the next thing you know, we go to SEC media days, right, in July. And remember the breaking news? I do. I think I had a lot of really good Georgia stories written, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. That was when it was announced that Texas and Oklahoma were going to join the SEC in 2025 or sooner if they were able to you know, get a buyout or whatever. So far they haven't, by the way. So we're still talking about 2025. Well, that news of Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC blew everybody's mind to the point that these other leagues were really upset. They felt like Greg Sankey knew that Texas and Oklahoma were coming, and that was why he wanted to expand the playoff to 12 teams. They felt like the SEC kind of duped him. Well, I don't think Greg Sankey duped anybody. I think Greg Sankey is a man of integrity. And you've heard me question people before about when they have their own interests to serve, but I truly believe that Greg Sankey is one of the most honest people in all of sports. So I don't think this was a setup. I don't think that the SEC did this to fool anybody. I think this, remember, this was a Texas and Oklahoma decision to leave the Big 12. They had to apply to the SEC. They probably knew that the SEC had to take them. Why? Because the SEC didn't want them to go to anywhere else, didn't want them to go to the ACC or the Big 10. So you either take them or somebody does. And it has been in the best interest of the SEC. So dialing it back. So the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12 are really upset. They're like, you know what? This is going to give the SEC too much of a competitive advantage. So they formed this alliance, right? The Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC have an alliance. And when they go to vote on changing the playoff format from 4 to 12, because they would and they would need a, a full vote of all 11 parties voting in order to do this before the contract is up, this alliance says, nope, Big Ten votes no, ACC votes no, and Pac-12 votes no. Now, they claim they didn't conspire to all vote the same, but it's pretty clear what's happening here. They're working with one another, and they're working against the SEC. They're even scheduling one another. They came up with a plan to schedule one another, ACC, Big Ten, Pac-12. Let's start playing one another more often in non-conference games, right? So this alliance is doing what it can to keep up with the SEC. And one of the things it did to keep up with the SEC is vote no to the 12-team playoff. <clears throat> so we're still at four teams. So now put yourself in Saban's shoes or Kirby's shoes. Your job is to win national championships. And why would you do anything 
that would make it harder to win a national championship. So that's why I think the nine game schedule is on hold. Now, something Kirby said that made a lot of sense to me is you could vote for one of these scheduling format changes, and then you could just vote to change it. So, for example, go ahead and vote in that other eight game model where you play the same team every year and rotate seven. You know, you could probably fake it with Georgia for a year and, and keep Auburn on the schedule, even though they're not the permanent opponent. I think we all know Florida would have to be the permanent opponent, but you could probably work that out for a year or two where Auburn's on the schedule, I would think. Um, maybe not, um, but some different ideas, different scheduling strategies. I like the one seven. Uh, I think you get to play a lot more teams, a lot faster. I think it protects your ability to play these non-conference games. Listen, I know last year, you know, my favorite game was the Georgia Clemson game. And I think this year, the game I'm looking forward to more than any is Georgia, Oregon. And not just because it's the first game. The only disappointing aspect to that, and this is the price you pay for your Georgia Tech series, there's no other way to say it, is it's too bad that Georgia and Oregon aren't a home and home. Uh, I've covered a game in Austin Stadium. It was unbelievable. It was a fantastic environment. I saw a really good Michigan State Oregon game, and Marcus Mariota worked this incredible magic. It was a Hall of Fame moment. It was a Heisman moment, frankly, for Marcus and and the Ducks. And they came from behind and beat a really good Michigan State team. Uh, but the environment was it was so fantastic. And I would really wish for Georgia fans that they would get an opportunity to do more of those trips. But this doggone Georgia Tech home and home, you're just you're throwing away that home game to go to Atlanta every other year. I just I, I'm just not sure about that model in this day and age. But, you know, that's for the powers that be to decide if it's worth that or not, giving up that sort of game. As it is, talked with Josh Brooks, the AD, and asked him about the Oklahoma game next year. Remember when they scheduled Oklahoma and a home and home? So the plan is for Georgia to go to Norman, Oklahoma in 2023. But Oklahoma doesn't play their return trip until 2031. Well, Oklahoma's going to be in the SEC by then. So how much of a return trip is that really? And that's something Josh Brooks, when I asked Josh about it, he said, that's something we're discussing. And I said, well, what did he say? I've got to be respectful to the people, you know, and Joe Castiglione, the Oklahoma AD, is the longest tenured AD at his current school in the country. Second is Mitch Barnhart of the SEC. Josh Brooks is in year two, and Josh is respectful of his elders. Now, I made the argument to Josh that who cares about your experience? You coach, you're the AD at the national championship program. So it doesn't matter that you're only a second year guy. You know, you've got as much power and authority as anybody just by the position you have at Georgia. And Josh does, but he's a guy that likes to dot the I's and cross the T's. And frankly, we, we really don't talk about ADs this much. This is the time of the year when we talk about ADs. I know Josh is probably sick and tired of hearing me talk about him, whether it's SEC meetings, whether it was the Georgia board meetings, whether it was which non-revenue coaches should he fire and keep. But this is kind of AD season. So Josh will know that next year, you know, he'll, he'll circle it on his calendar that May and June or months to lay low. I think he's trying to lay low now. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but we do right now, we do put the spotlight on Georgia leadership 
And, and frankly, it, it reflects well right now. In fact, I felt so impressed with President Jerry Moorhead at the spring meetings that I wrote a story about it. I wrote a story about it. I, I remember I went on the Feinbaum show on Tuesday. It was the first show because Monday was Memorial Day. That's why we didn't do the show last Monday. And uh, myself and a guy by the name of John Talty, who is the columnist for AL.com, we led off the Feinbaum show the first 30 minutes with, with Paul Feinbaum from Destin. And uh, it went swimmingly well. I uh, had an opportunity to talk about the Texas A&M uh, Alabama fiasco. Um, Texas A&M fans got a little chat that I said they were a renegade program. Uh, Feinbaum challenged me on it, and I simply explained, look, this is a program that was once in the Southwestern Conference. I think we're all familiar uh, in the 1980s, I believe more than 50% of those teams were hit with violations in the 80s. Uh, I know Texas A&M had a television ban one year in the 90s. Um, they are among the top five most penalized football programs in terms of major violations. And two years ago, Jimbo Fisher got hit with a show cause. So there's a lot of background with A&M and the NCAA and Jimbo Fisher. Um and so the term renegade struck me as appropriate in that that's kind of how Saban was trying to label them, right? That's why he called them out. And the AM folks didn't like that very much. But um, as you all know, uh, you've heard me shoot from the hip before. I've been critical of Georgia at times, Georgia players at times. And certainly when I talk about other teams in the league and other players in the league, a good or bad, I'm going to be pretty direct. Well, Later in the day, Jerry Moorhead went on with Paul Feinbaum. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You know, President Moorhead has no idea he's getting in the cage with a lion. I mean, you all have watched Feinbaum on the SEC Network. His interviews can, can be quite abrupt at times. And it wasn't so long ago, what, six or seven years when, when Nick Saban and him were in. Saban was shouting at him. At, you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, does, you know, President Moorhead not realize you know, and so I watched the tape. I didn't watch it live because I, I wasn't aware it was going to happen. And I heard about it and I watched the tape of it. And I could not believe how composed and articulate and poised uh, Jerry Moorhead was in this interview. I, Feinbaum essentially cross-examined the UGA president. It was like Jerry Moorhead was on trial for everything that's gone wrong in the NCAA. Now, to be fair, President Moorhead is serving as the SEC president right now, and he is also a member of the Board of Governors and the Board of Directors for the NCAA. Those are the two most powerful committees. You could argue that right now, right now, with Mark Emmert on his way out, the NCAA president on his way out in the next year, you could argue that Jerry Moorhead is the most powerful administrator in the NCAA, you couldn't make that plausible argument because he's the SEC president. And Jerry Moorhead does not like to do media. Understand that. He is an academician. He's a former U.S. attorney. He can handle himself just fine in front of the cameras, but he would just as soon his head football coach or any of his coaches get that exposure. He's very happy to do what he does in Athens. But I believe that President Moorhead recognized that part of his role and part of his job because of his positions is to do just this sort of interview. And so I wrote a story about it. 
And I called Feinbaum Thursday before I wrote the story. I said, Paul, I said, I got to ask you, man, tell me about having President Moorhead on. And he said, well, you know, we've never had a president on at the SEC meetings before, Mike. We've, we've been going there quite a while. But I spoke with the conference office about it. And he is so highly thought of. And they believe he's the most one of the most influential um, administrators in the country. And so there's a lot of things going on. And I had some serious questions to ask. And he did. He pushed President Moorhead. He poked at him. Uh, he, he was he was crass at times. Frankly, Paul was doing his best to invoke these honest answers and giving and, and Moorhead stayed calm and gave the answers. And just that scene, the UGA president sitting beachside with Feinbaum doing a live television interview on all the ills of college sports. Just it blew my mind that Moorhead sat in that seat and did that interview and not only did that interview, but did it well. And the next day, I was one of three or four other media members. Moorhead was walking through the hallway. The way these spring meetings are set up, there's this large conference room where the ADs and the presidents and the coaches meet. And the media kind of lays in wait outside of this room. Now, they know we're there, right? This is an invitation-only media event. It's kind of a who's who of, of national writers and beat writers from around the league. And there's probably about 30 to 40 people there. Not very many. They keep the attendance down. Uh, very again, it's a very select group, and, and but we still act like reporters. So when they walk by, you know, we want to ask questions, and sometimes they'll say, you know, we can't talk. They'll put the brakes on you. And President Moore had just about gotten away, and uh, myself and there was a reporter from Oregon there flagged him down. And before you knew it, there were six people around President Moorhead, and he was getting grilled again. And he stood there; his arms were, you know, his briefcase and a bag. I mean, I his arms had to be getting tired. He stood there for a good twenty minutes and just answered questions and shotgun order. And I'm thinking to myself, he has never done this before. Used to be Greg McGarity would walk next to him and, and kind of be the bodyguard and cut off any questions. Um, but but Moorhead showed me a side of leadership that I didn't know that he had. He'd never had to show that before. But under this circumstance, with all of us wanting answers, he was the president that stood there and answered all those difficult questions. Now, there were ADs that spoke up, as I told you, Josh Brooks really didn't want to do a lot. You know, he's, he's young. It's his first time there. I, I think he wants to defer. So it was the Alabama AD and the Florida AD and the Texas A&M and, and, and some of the bigger name ADs uh, holding court, uh, controlling narrative, so to speak. I, I think Josh felt comfortable with with the direction things were going i think if josh felt like he needed to speak up he would have but but that's really not his forte at least not yet i think he will um continue to evolve in that capacity he's a extremely intelligent guy i think the uh, ad positions in great hands i wrote a column today uh three takeaways from the sec spring meetings one of them was that josh brooks gives george an advantage on the football front um because i don't know if you know this but josh brooks uh, graduated from LSU, he was an equipment manager and then student assistant at LSU when Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher were there. He was Jimbo's student assistant. So Brooks has been around football and he did some GA work, right? And then he was a director of football operations, uh, both at Louisiana, I believe Louisiana Monroe for four years, and then under Mark Richt at Georgia. So Josh Brooks, we call him an AD but he's a football guy. Make no mistake about it. He is a football guy at his base. Uh, it's just that he's developed these um, these great 
administrative um, skills that's made him a, I guess, about a $750,000 AD or so, maybe 800000 So Josh Brooks at 42 years old has done well for himself. I think he's an advantage for Georgia in football. That is the most important sport. It drives the revenue train. Uh, but getting back to the point, uh, Jerry Moorhead with some incredible leadership. And I know there were a lot of UGA fans that were very proud uh, that the president handled himself in that manner. I know Paul Feinbaum was impressed. He told me, Mike, let, let him know all the interviews don't have to go. I said, I will, Paul. I'll tell him. And I did. I told President Moorhead, I said, you know, the next time you do the Feinbaum show, hopefully it'll be this year. I'm guessing that uh, Feinbaum will be in Georgia at some point for the pregame show. I told Moorhead, I said, listen, it's not going to be like that every time. Uh, Paul's not, he goes, no, no, he goes, and President Moore was like, well, I thought his questions were just fine. You know, just deadpan. I thought, man, this guy's got game. Jerry Moorhead has got game. So I, I didn't know it, uh, but that was one of my favorite takeaways. And that will always be one of my favorite memories to see an, a president handle that moment the way that Jerry Moorhead did. Um, I think Georgia fans should be really proud about that. Let's go ahead and take our halftime break. When I come back, I want to go over some results of some polls I did on the white helmets on where the game in Jacksonville should be played when it's Georgia's home game and when it's Florida's home game. And then what Georgia should do about the 2023 Oklahoma game. Stay with me right now. Let's recognize our sponsor Ingalls. It's in our hearts to feel for you. There's been ups and downs, turnarounds, there's good days and some bad. But we stand together for worse and for better. We'll always have your back. Focus on heart to heart, hand in hand. Community strong. Community strong. Indeed, really appreciate Ingles. I know you guys love that song. I love to see the comments on the Ingles song. It's cool that you've, you've picked up uh, on what Ingles is all about there. And um, you know, certainly uh, we appreciate our sponsor. And I always enjoy tossing to that spot. I get a little warm spot in my heart when I hear that song and think about everything that we've gone through together. And, and certainly that uh, Ingles has helped us get through. So the, the polls, this started innocently enough. I like to do the polls on Twitter. I know not everyone is on Twitter, and that's fine. Twitter is not for everyone. It's kind of like an R-rated movie. Not everybody wants everything that goes along with Twitter. It can get pretty rough in there, frankly. Um, there are days when Twitter has uh, knocked my dapper down. I thought to myself, why, why do I read these You know, people saying the most mean, crazy things? Uh, and I've allowed myself to be affected by it. not, not often, but it happens. I'm human. You know, if you, if you don't care what people think about you, I, you know, good for you. But I, I think we all, uh, to some degree care what people think of us. Let me start out with the first poll that I did on, uh, what Georgia should do about the 2023 game against Oregon. Should they, or should they not play it? And my thought and I didn't, uh, I guess I did vote on it, actually. I do vote. I do vote on my own polls, just so you know. My thought on it was play it, but play it at a neutral site. Call Oklahoma up and say, look, Oklahoma, here's the deal. When we scheduled this game, you weren't in our league, and this was going to be a home and home. And we were going to go to Norman 
and you were going to come to Athens. Well, now we're not going to get that return game. It'll be a conference game. I don't think we're going to, in earnest, get that return game. But because of recruiting, I would play Oklahoma and Dallas. I would play Oklahoma and Jerry World. I think that would be a good experience for the Bulldogs. Uh, I'm trying to remember, when was the last time Georgia was in uh, Dallas? I know they've gone to the Sugar Bowl a couple times since I've covered them to play Texas and Baylor. Uh, I've seen them play in the Peach Bowl, and I've seen them play in the Rose – or excuse me, I didn't see them in person play in the Rose Bowl, but they played in the Rose Bowl. I was actually covering the Sugar Bowl that year between Alabama and Clemson. Um, so – what should Georgia do? Cancel the game by just, you know, bought out, walk away, go Oklahoma, find somebody else. Georgia, find another home game. Uh, cancel it. Try to move it somewhere. I just don't see a hole in the schedule. I say play it, but play it in Dallas uh, because that's a place the dogs haven't been. I don't know how you all feel about going to Dallas. Uh, I can tell you that. Uh, Jerry World uh, is in Arlington there. Is an, it's an incredible football stadium. I think I may be a little biased, but I would put it a shade below Mercedes-Benz Stadium in terms of the technology. I really like Mercedes-Benz Stadium a lot. I really, really, really like it a lot. It's To me, it's 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 an incredible um, uh, venue. Venue. I, I prefer Sanford Stadium and, and Neyland Stadium and the Swamp would probably be my three, maybe Tiger Stadium. But those would be my three or four favorite SEC stadiums. Uh, in the Big Ten, I liked Michigan and Nebraska uh, were my two favorite stadiums. I mentioned Altson Stadium. That would be in my top ten list. That's a great destination stadium to go to. Um, so I've been to a lot of major stadiums. Um, but in terms of these BCS, these New Year's Six Bowls, Jerry World is something that needs to be on. you got to do it. it it's, it's a remarkable uh, stadium Dallas is uh, that Dallas metropolitan area is is a really nice venue. I think Georgia fans would enjoy that trip. Uh, yes, there'd be a lot of Oklahoma there, but I think that'd be a cool trip. So, how did fans vote? What should Georgia try to do about its 2023 road game? 47 percent of the people said play it at Oklahoma anyway. I thought that was interesting. Just give Oklahoma. I said, wow, okay. Well, I mean, nothing like going, you know, you say that till you lose, you're like, what the heck? Why did we do that? I just don't. The reason I would say Dallas and not Norman is because of the recruiting, right? A lot of times when people talk about the Jacksonville game and they make the argument that, well, Oklahoma and Texas, they play a neutral site game in Dallas. Well, it really is a neutral site. Did you know it's like 180 miles from one and 185 from the other? I mean, Dallas Metropolitan is basically right in between Austin and Oklahoma City, Norman area. So it's neutral in that sense, number one. Number two, that Dallas-Fort Worth area is the fourth largest metropolitan area in the nation. That's right. When you combine Dallas and Fort Worth, that is the number four metropolitan market in the country behind Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. That's how big it is. And so there's a huge advantage to play there because there's so many prospects. Jacksonville, it's like the 40th. It's not that big. It's not that big of a recruiting game. Um, Dallas, and it's certainly not neutral, 330 miles from Athens and 70 from Gainesville. 
So this, I think do it. I think play it. That's my take. But 47% of the fans uh, out of, uh, looks like 878 votes said play it there anyway. 28% agreed with me to play it at a neutral site. And 25% of the people said to drop next year's game with Oklahoma. So the majority of those says play it in Norman anyway. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, Josh Brooks says they are in discussions and we will see what Georgia and Oklahoma decide to do. But that is definitely something uh, that we're wondering about. Uh, another poll that I did, and the reason this came up is because when we were at those Georgia spring board meetings down there in Greensboro, Georgia, at the Lake Oconee Ritz-Carlton, very nice location, I uh, had a chance to visit with Josh Brooks extensively there, as well as Jerry Moorhead, uh, and, and watch them do their thing, right? Watching the Georgia Athletics Board work uh, very orderly, um, boy, just a, a lot of brain power around that table. You know, it was really interesting, um, you know, to see John Stinscombe there. He presented. I was really, really impressed with John. Uh, yeah, he still is big enough to look like an offensive lineman, but, man, the way he spoke and, and uh, just how articulate he was and speaking with the initiative um, for mental health in the committee that Ron Corson put together, you know, George is putting more of an emphasis into that. My goodness, all we have to do is turn on the television folks. And we see there's a lot of crazy things going on in our world right now. And, you know, kudos to Josh Brooks for recognizing this and putting a priority on it, even in the Georgia athletic department, kudos to Ron Corson uh, for having this staff put together uh, to identify these potential issues for these young men um, you know, these are very trying times. So I um, think that's very interesting. Uh, so uh, one of the things I asked Josh about was the Georgia-Florida game because the contract runs out in 2023, right? So what are you going to do, Josh? The contract runs out in 2023. We know that Kirby has just negotiated this blockbuster contract, which I think could be worth $115 million. I I believe it was 10 for, for 100 million on the front end, but Jimmy Sexton is a very savvy negotiator. It's why he's the best sports agent out there. And my guess is that they are aiming to match Lincoln Riley. Now Lincoln Riley lives in Los Angeles and the cost of living there is approximately 30% higher. I did some of those cost of living adjustment numbers, but 115 million is 115 million. I wouldn't be surprised to see Kirby match Lincoln Riley's contract at 115 million. Kirby won the national title. He did it in year six. Um, he did it despite having 12 and a half percent last less uh, recruiting opportunities. And we know how Kirby feels about this game. Not that he doesn't like Jacksonville. Be, to be clear on that, Kirby has said he very much likes Jacksonville. He played in this rivalry. He's a dog himself. But what everybody's missing here is that, as Kirby said himself, you've got, if not the greatest home field stadium environment, one of the top five in the country. It's You just don't find a town in a stadium that goes together like Sanford Stadium in Athens. I, I had my daughter and my son-in-law down a week and a half ago and I took them into Athens for dinner. They'd never been down here. I took them into Athens for dinner, uh, Trapeze Pub, uh, free free uh, plug there for Trapeze. 
Um, Connor Riley and I both agree. We think it's our favorite. Of course, there's Last Resort, Cali and Tito's. We could, you know, Mama's Boy. We go on and on about great local eateries uh, in Athens. Uh, five uh, bar I, on again, uh, but I, I took them there. They loved it. They said it was the best. My son said, "Boy, that's the best meal I've had, you know, this year, calendar year." And then I drove by the stadium, and how cool is it? that they keep the lights on at Sanford stadium and they keep the entrance open. So Joe blow or an alum or just anyone can walk in at that plaza level and get their picture taken. And I did that with my granddaughter and um, you know, this is like something, a memento, right? You know, I'm working and living down here in Athens and covering Georgia and you know, here she is five years old and she's visiting and this is something she'll always have, you know, what Someday, you know, what did, what did what did your granddad do? Well, he covered Georgia football. Here's a picture of us together. So it was really it was really neat. And I just thought, man, this is such a unique place. Why does Georgia keep giving all these doggone games away? One-off games at neutral sites. You know, you got Oregon this year in Atlanta. You got Clemson in Atlanta. You got uh, you know the game. You never want to play Florida here. You want to play away at Tech, which even though they're not really worth the run. Stop. You know my opinion, right? So you you guys know how I feel about it. So I did the survey. I said the Georgia Florida Jacksonville contract is up in 2023 and it's being discussed. What would you like to see Georgia do with its designated home game in the series? Thirty nine percent of the people said play it in Athens. 30% of the people said whatever Kirby wants. 31% said Jacksonville. So Kirby wants the game in Athens. Therefore, 69% of the people want this game in Athens because it's what Kirby wants or because they want it there personally. Only 31% less than one out of three people want this game in Jacksonville. Think about that. We're down to less than one out of three. It's going to be on President Moorhead and Josh Brooks to make a decision. There is some... Um, there is some uh, financial incentive. There's a couple more million dollars to be had. But what is the value of a home recruiting weekend in Lake October? In late October, the timing of it, the value of a home recruiting weekend for Florida, I think it would be on par with what we saw the Notre Dame weekend in 2019. I'll be real curious to see if this series gets. Now, here's the other part of this. Even if Georgia were to play its designated home game in Athens. There's no guarantee that Florida would stop playing in Jacksonville. In fact, I believe Florida would continue to play its designated home game in Jacksonville. What would change? Well, the ticket allotment wouldn't be 50-50 anymore if they did that, right? But it wouldn't be 50-50 in Athens either. You'd have about 80%. So this will be very interesting to see. Now, this year, this is Georgia's year as a designated home team. Therefore, you only have three home games this year. Everybody else has four. Georgia's got three. So... Could this be the last time that Georgia plays a designated home game in Jacksonville? Could 2025, excuse me, 2024 roll around and see Florida playing in Sanford Stadium? That's possible. Now, the people that want the game to stay in Jacksonville are very vocal about this and passionate. And, you know, Jeff Centel has a great story to tell about this, why he loves it. I know Brandon Adams and Connor Riley. Uh, both big Georgia guys, you know, they, big Georgia fans, they want it there too. Um, but from an operations standpoint, Kirby Smart has said he's made his feelings very clear. Now, was that part of his contract negotiation? I, I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that question. 
But uh, this will be very, stay tuned, right? Josh told me that they're still talking about it. They said, look, we, we've got two years left on the contract. We're still deciding what we're going to do. That's what Josh Brooks told me. So once again, those numbers, 39% of the people said they want Georgia's home game with Florida in Athens. 30% said they want it wherever Kirby wants it. If Kirby wants it in Athens, they want it in Athens. 31% of the people said they want it in Jacksonville. So that's very interesting numbers on the Georgia-Florida rivalry and what our Dog Nation unscientific Twitter poll said. Uh, I asked another question, and this seemed to throw some people off. Uh, and that's okay. It was a bit of a curveball. I said, where would you like to see Florida play its designated home game in the series? Not Georgia, but Florida. Uh, where would you want to see Florida play Georgia when it's their designated home game? And I thought that was interesting, too. Because basically I was saying, do you want to see Georgia play in Gainesville or do you want to see him play in Jacksonville? 51% of the people said they would like to see Florida play its home game with Georgia in Jacksonville. 27% said they don't care. Only 22% want to see Georgia play in Gainesville. They'd rather, more than twice as many, would rather see Georgia play in Jacksonville. I sort of get it, but I sort of don't. Because here's the thing. If Georgia plays Florida in Jacksonville and it's Florida's designated home game, you're not going to have as many dog fans there, right? You might as well play in the swamp. And I'm telling you, as somebody that's covered games there, I love covering games in the swamp. When I think about the biggest wins for programs that I've covered, some of them were in the swamp. When Auburn beat, when Terry Bowden beat Steve Spurrier in the swamp in 1994, it was one of the Auburn's biggest wins. Uh, when I saw Alabama go there, uh, one of their biggest wins. When I saw Tennessee win in the swamp, um, one of their biggest wins, especially 2001, probably uh, you know one of Philip Fulmer's greatest victories. If Steve Spurrier's last game coaching in the swamp is the Gators coach, winning there for a program means a lot you know remember when we saw south carolina just go crazy when they beat georgia and athens in 2019 uh, rodrigo's field goal goes wide and you know the gamecocks are tearing uh, to this day is probably one of will muschamp's biggest wins as a head coach uh certainly one of those players from carolina they still talk about it right and i can't remember which georgia player was saying he didn't realize what a big deal it was till he got to the nfl and the guy from south carolina wouldn't leave him alone about it Winning at the Swamp has that effect. It's, it's a cool place. It's a unique stadium. Um, it's a really nice campus. Um, it, it's a good road trip, you know, just like LSU. You know, I put it on par with, with LSU. I think Gainesville is slightly nicer than Baton Rouge. I don't know that I think either one of those cities is the greatest, um, but depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for places to eat and, and drink, they got plenty of them, right? LSU's got that Cajun theme going, pretty cool, the Spanish Moss. There's Spanish Moss on the Gainesville campus, a little bit louder, um, uh, a little bit wilder, I would say. But uh, both fun places to be. You know, Spurrier's Gridiron Grill, a lot of fun in Gainesville. I'd recommend that. Just like the Mule's place, I'd recommend it better. They're, they're memory places. You know, I just – the Jacksonville, I just – I didn't – you know, where do you even go around there anymore? I know they've closed the landing. and Now, the, the, the week leading up to it is fantastic. And that's the sell. And I did that. And it was awesome. I did two nights 
uh, at Amelia Island, and it was fantastic. It was everything that, that my coworkers said it would be. But the game day around the stadium itself did not compare, in my opinion. So once again, that survey, survey said 51% want to see Florida play their designated home game in Jacksonville. Only 22% wanted to see that played in Gainesville. So those were a couple of fun polls. The, I saved the best for last because this one truly, I mean, so the fans want to see, the majority of the fans want to see Georgia play their home game with Florida in Athens. The majority of the fans want to see the Gators play their home game with Georgia in Jacksonville, which I think they would. Uh, now, what do the fans want Georgia to do about these white helmets? And I know you've been reading the Connor Riley stories. I know you've been reading the Jeff Centel stories. Uh, if Brandon was around this week, he would be talking about this. I don't know what side he would come down on this. Um, but I asked, should Georgia wear those cool white helmets? I guess I'm giving away my take. Should they wear those white helmets this season? 21% of the people said yes, but only against Oregon. 13% said yes, and more than once. 32% said whatever Kirby wants. One out of three, whatever Kirby wants. 34% said no, never. Interesting. So one, just over one out of three people are like, never, don't do it. And then you've got the other 30, 64% that are open to it. So two thirds of the people are open to this, but the people that aren't really aren't, they don't ever want to see it happen. I don't know how you feel about it. My thought on it is this. I think the neutral site uniforms, or excuse me, I think that the, uh, the, the, these optional uh, uniforms should be worn in neutral site games. You know, Oregon's going to come and the Ducks are going to have a really cool color scheme for Atlanta. You just know that Oregon is going to do something cool with their uniforms. I know you all know that Phil Knight, the Nike founder, uh, is an Oregon guy and the Ducks are going to look cool. I, I covered an Oregon-Michigan State game, kickoff game. Uh, in fact, I want to say it was, was the year after Mariota beat him. So it might have been the playoff team. It might have been the 2015 Spartans. And it was fantastic. In fact, it was only the first time in like nine years that the, uh, that a Big Ten team had played a non-conference top ten opponent from another conference. I think I want to say maybe Ohio State had done it previously, but it just doesn't happen that often up there, you know, because they play a nine-game conference schedule. So they just they don't play those tough out-of-conference games because they play the nine game. So it was a fascinating environment. Uh, the uniforms were rip-roaring for both teams. It was a great game. Michigan State won. Um, I'd like to see Georgia do something fun with their uniforms <clears throat> for Oregon, just for Oregon. Wear the white helmet. I don't know. Do you go all red with it? Do you go Stormtrooper all white? Um, you were, I, 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 I can't even imagine what, the, what they will do. But I get the drift, listening to Jeff, that something's going on with these white helmets. I, I know that the reason you break them out is the recruits love them, but where did they come from? We've never seen them. Now, all that said, I, I don't think I would want to see a neutral site uniform for an SEC game. I, I didn't really like to see Georgia wear the black that much. Um, wear it in your bowl game, maybe, if it's, if it's not a playoff game. Uh, wear it in a neutral site game. But in the SEC games, be in your traditional garb. That's kind of my thought. In the red helmet, 
Um, to me, it's Georgia's got one of the best uniforms in college football. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a little fun with the with the alternative uh, alternate uniforms. So I'm I would vote in the yes, but only against Oregon camp, just because that's the neutral site game. Like I don't know what y'all thought about the red pants at Arkansas. I thought those were cool. I thought that was neat. Maybe you pull out the red pants and a white. I don't know what you do. Um, I wasn't as high on the black jerseys as I thought I would be. Um, you know, maybe with a black helmet. Now, now we're talking. That looked pretty cool. But I, the black jerseys just it didn't it didn't work for me as much as I thought it would. I, I thought I would like the black jerseys more than the red pants, but I actually like the red pants more than the black jerseys. Uh, that's just me. Everybody's got uh, different tastes, and, and nobody's right or wrong in this case. Really, Kirby Smart's the only one that's right because he's the boss. Uh, Kirby does leave decisions like this up to his leadership council. I think he does defer. I, I do know that I remember talking with a lot of the guys after the 2018 season, and I remember talking with DeAndre Baker and some of the other guys. They said they're never going to wear those black jerseys. Kirby's never going to let them do it. And, of course, uh, you know, Kirby probably heard that. So he said, oh, yeah, okay, well, then I will. Cause, cause that's Kirby. Right. And I've got a story coming out later this week about Kirby, the contrarian. I think it's kind of fun. As I've told you, you know, Kirby, Kirby likes to uh, argue sometimes just for the sake of just not going along with what everybody says. I think somebody told him, uh, you know, it's a lot harder to win a second title than it is the first. And, and, and Kirby's like, according to who, you know, who, who's telling him that, like, don't give word of advice. Don't give Kirby smart advice. Kirby smart doesn't need advice. Um, and not on football, at least. I mean, my goodness, the guy has five national title rings, four of them from Bama. But, you know, what he did here uh, last season, having to change that offense around with the receivers out, uh, you know, having to, you know, let, let's face it, you know, they, you, you don't have the most dynamic playmakers at every offensive position. Uh, there were some, but not all. Kind of had to overcome that with your scheme. Um, and, and Georgia did. And, and they're the champs. And so that's why we're sitting here uh, in the first week of June. We're talking Georgia football. Uh, we're liking it. We're liking it. We're, we're fascinated by it. Uh, we're looking at other areas uh, in the conference, other teams. You know, I've been very fortunate to cover other championship programs at Alabama and Tennessee after they won the title. And what happens is the coverage goes beyond the team. When you're on top, like Georgia is, suddenly you care more about what everybody else is doing because you're on top of the mountain now and you want to look out what's going on over here. What's going on over there. Right. And so it's a lot more fun to follow all of the league. And I'm seeing Georgia fans are starting to really get that taste and that feel for what it's like to be the top program. Uh, before I go, uh, George baseball, uh, tough, tough loss. Uh, Scott Strickland is a guy that, that I, if I was a ball player, I'd want to play for. This is one of the most likable uh, coaches that I've ever been around. And, and I've been around a lot. And I can understand his popularity. Uh, this was just heartbreaking to watch Georgia lose to North Carolina and be eliminated uh, yesterday. The Carolina guy goes, for those that you don't know, uh, dogs are down 6-2 to two going into the bottom of the ninth at North Carolina. Uh, they were the designated home team. And the Tate brothers, these fascinating, fantastic players from Oconee County right here in, uh, in my backyard. You know, the, the Cole Tate, the leading hitter, starts out with rips the first pitch up the middle for a single. Brother Connor doubles. Runners, you know, second and third. Uh, I think a guy grounds out. And, and, and then, you know, boom. Uh, Three-run home run. Uh, Cheney, 
uh, Cheney Rogers, and then uh, and then Josh McAllister comes up. Now it's six to five, right? Redshirt senior playing his last game. Tough kid took a pitch in the face, kept playing, hits a blast to center that looks like it's out. And this North Carolina center fielder Drew Honeycutt does the does the Air Jordan and takes it in from outside the park. Just absolutely robbed him. And then they ground out. They lose by a run. It's at 6-5. Season over. Season over. And, uh, man, you think, man, if they would have won, you know, Jonathan Cannon comes back. You know, and sure enough, North Carolina, you know, beats Virginia Commonwealth twice and advances. It could have been Georgia. It, it was that close. And, and listening to an emotional Scott Strickland, uh, you just – you just your heart goes out for the Georgia Bulldogs. Baseball, this team is just – they've got this Charlie Brown hard luck thing – and and I hope for Scott Strickland's sake that once they get these facilities going, that Georgia can can just break this streak. It's, they haven't been to a super regional since 2008. I mean, it's just it's too long, and it's just been bad breaks. It's been bad luck. It's been bad breaks. But at some point, you got to change your own luck, and it's going to be on these Georgia Bulldogs to do that next season. I know Strickland is going to push hard. I know his staff is going to push hard. I know Josh Brooks is is going to watch it closely as he will softball. Right. Tony Baldwin's first year, they didn't get out of the out of the regionals. You know, Georgia had brought back eight players off a World Series team in softball. You know, this is this is you know, this, this is not this is not where Josh wants these programs. Now he's gonna be fair. I think all of you read the story where Josh says that before he is critical of a coach, he looks inward to make sure that Georgia's done all that they can do to support the coach. I think Josh realizes that both baseball and softball are behind in facilities and they got to catch up and we could talk all night about why Georgia fell behind, but they did. Um, you see what's happening now that Georgia football is caught up in facilities, by the way, let's see what happens once Josh gets these facilities where they need to be on par. And you still have a, a great recruiting base that I think should be able to compensate for that. But Josh Brooks, a very fair guy is going to be very thorough in how he evaluates these coaches in the programs uh, before he takes any sort of action. So uh, that's kind of the production for tonight. Let's take a look and see if any of you had any questions. Um, never forgive Bama for hiring Mike Shula and Dennis Franchione. Um, you know, Bama was in a tough spot back then. Uh, their facilities were pretty cruddy as well. Um, you know, I thought Mike Shula was actually a really good hire. I felt like Mike Shula was the in-between hire to get you from point A Point C, I thought he kind of set the table for Saban a little bit. Again, I did not think. Um, I see Kirby Visor did not like the uniforms for Boise. I'd agree with that. There's good alternates and there's bad alternates. I thought those were bad alternates. I think this helmet looks a lot better. Uh, I like what uh, Harry Legs talking about golf dealing with sanctions. You know, Ray Golf recruited Will Muschamp here and Kirby Smart. What if Ray Golf doesn't recruit? Kirby Smart. Ray Goff put together uh, one of the most dynamic offensive of all time, uh, his team with Eric Zier. I, I, it, Ray Goff didn't do great record-wise, but Ray Goff was an SEC offensive player a year who won an SEC championship. I think Ray Goff should be treated better in general. Um, I know it was a tough time. There were also injuries, also injuries with Ray Goff as well. And, uh, you know, in hiring Ray Goff, I don't know that Vince Dooley really ever took his hands off the wheel, if you want to be honest. And if you want to look at Coach Dooley's uh, last years as a head coach, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't doing much. Goff had one 10-win season in there. 
So pretty interesting um, when we look back on that. Spurrier never forgave UGA for not hiring him. I, I don't know about that. I've never heard that story. I've never heard about Spurrier not being happy to be hired by UGA. Uh, that's news to me. Um, someone tried to tell you that Sark is a better offensive mind than Munkin. Um, you know, uh, they both won a national title, right? Um, Sark worked with Mac Jones. Munkin had to work with Stetson Bennett. Um, I think Georgia had a better defense. We'll find out a lot about Todd Munkin this year, uh, and we'll find out more about Sark. I, I think Sark is a really good I, – I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to have to pick between those two offensively as far as offensive minds. Sark hasn't proven anything as a head coach, though, and that's where you know they're in trouble in the Arch Manning recruitment. So that's going to be pretty interesting. Let's see what other questions do we have. Uh, any other questions before I go tonight? Want to make sure uh, hit everything you guys wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, hopefully, we we touched on everything. I saw Coach Mark Richt is on the Hall of Fame ballot. I, I like that uh, him along with Garrison Hurst. Just so you know, those are two separate votes: the coaches' vote, players' vote. It's not like you got to pick one or the other. I think Ray. I think that uh, I think Mark Richt is a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't think there's any question about that. I think the class, the dignity, the winning percentage, the records, and don't forget he was a big part of the Bobby Bowden era. Um, can't say enough good things about Mark Rick. I think he represented George in an incredible way and really set the table for Kirby. I, I kind of compare the way Kirby came in and won a national championship to Fulmer coming behind Johnny Majors. You know, I think it was about the same time frame, about six years, right? And, you know, Fulmer inherited a pretty good situation from majors. He was an internal hire, though, whereas, um, you know, Kirby had to go out and hire his whole new staff. He inherited a lot of talent from Mark Rick, was able to play for a national title in just his second year. So uh, pretty crazy, um, pretty crazy stuff. So, uh, hey, great show tonight. Uh, great participation. If you could follow me on Twitter at Mike Griffith 32, really appreciate it. I hope you guys have a great week. Keep reading the Centels and Tell. A lot of recruiting coverage this weekend. I know you're weak. I know you guys saw it was a very big uh, recruiting weekend for the Bulldogs, and Jeff is going to have a lot of stories on that tomorrow night. I think you're going to have Connor in coverage, and then Wednesday night, uh, Centel's Intel there between the hedges. So I'm Mike Griffith. I want you guys to have a great week, and I will see you again real soon.